welcome to episode 63 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we're going to be talking about promotion. Yeah, so when we talked about this or talked about this topic, I could have sworn we did one on it before, but apparently not. No. <laughs> not not an entire episode. I think we sort of touched on promotion here and there. I think we talked about it in our author brand episode, and I think we've talked about it kind of, I think, in our first Publishing 101 series. But I mm-hmm. don't think we actually had an entire podcast dedicated to promotion. Um, and specifically, I guess, author promotion, because I, <laughs> having just released my own book, feel a little bit better equipped to tell you what that's like and what sort of promotion you might or may not be expected to do. Hmm. So, um, I guess let's just define what promotion is. Um, yeah. I don't know. Kelly, you want to take a stab at it? Um, promotion. What is promotion? It is, um, I was going to say promoting your book, but you can't define a word using that same word in the (laughs) definition. (laughs) It's, it's, um, I feel like it's related to publicity and marketing and it's in that wheelhouse, but it's not quite the same thing. It's getting the word out about your book. It's, um, you know, talking about it, getting other people talking about it. Um, you know, getting that, you know, household name recognition and, you know, just, just promotion, advertising, but not really advertising. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it is truly getting the word out there. And I think what you said about how it's really publicity and marketing, which is true, it's publicity and marketing when your publisher does it and it's promotion when you do it. (laughs) I think that's Mm -hmm. probably the easiest way to look at it. Even though all of that put together is promotion, you know, your publisher does promote your book. Um, but what they do falls under the auspices of marketing and publicity. So let's, let's start with the publishing side of things first. Again, a little bit of a refresher of what publicity and marketing do. We did have uh, a publicist on Mallory. We, uh, this was a while back now in our mm-hmm. early days of the podcast, but, um, you guys, I'll, I'll put a link to her episode about what sort of things publicists do. Um, and what sort of things marketing does. Now, publicity and marketing work pretty closely in a publishing house. And ultimate, ultimately, the real difference between publicity and marketing is money. <laughs> <laughs> Publicists are trying to get eyes on your titles. So they're trying to get other outlets to write about it, to mention it, to review it, to all that sort of stuff. Whereas marketing is trying to get people to buy it. So they're buying advertising, you know, spots, they're buying co-op in stores, they're buy So advert, so marketing has the money to spend to, to promote your book. That isn't necessarily public facing the way publicity does. Um, so that's kind of marketing and publicity, uh, from the publisher side. And then from the author side, it's, <laughs> Promotion on author side can vary pretty widely in terms of what the author wants to do and what the author is equipped to do and sometimes what the author can afford to do. Uh, 
Um, but the things that an author can do to promote their own book include things like making swag. Swag can include anything from bookmarks to, um, you know, like little buttons or pins or other giveaway items. um, Authors can promote themselves by writing up a bunch of blog posts or essays or anything like that, that and they can submit them to publications to talk about their book, even obliquely or indirectly. These are all things that an author can do on their own as well. Now, the real question is, is, well, why does the author have to do this if they are traditionally published? Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's lots of reasons why authors need to promote their books. Um, One of the simplest reasons is that if you're an author, your book is your sole focus. And a publisher has multiple titles that they need to divide their resources on. They need to divide... um, their budgets, their money, what goes to what title. They need to divide their employee man hours. There's only so many publicists and so many, you know, marketing people in a publishing house. And they don't just work on one book. They work on many books. Um, so when you're an author, you're, you can be 100% focused on just your book, whereas your publisher's attention is necessarily divided. Mm-hmm. And we did mention this before too. I think we talked about what a lead title is versus midlist. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being midlist. But you do have to be aware of where you fall in the publishing hierarchy. I hate to put it that way, but it is true. You're, the lead titles are going to get the most amount of attention and money simply because they are the lead title for that season. So it is what it is. Resources are limited and are allocated based on, you know, perceived success. I know it sounds backwards to, you know, when you're like, why do you spend a bunch of money on a book that is a sure moneymaker when you could be spending money on the midlist titles? But part of it, part of the mentality, at least from the publisher side, is that you put money into the lead title likely because you spent a lot of money on the lead title. Um, so you are looking to recoup that money you spent by, and you do that by investing in it. You do that by making it more visible, by putting it in all the places where consumers can see it, by, you know, putting up a huge pre-publication campaign for it, because that's how they're looking to recoup the investment. Generally, midlist titles are paid, you know, smaller advances, not always, but some, you know, midlist titles often get a smaller advance. And they're not quite so worried about making that money back. It's actually quite surprising for those who are not in publishing to see how well the publishing machine actually works. In that your book, even with a minimal amount of promotion, and by minimal, I mean like getting your book into the publisher's catalog and, you know, talking about it and having, you know, the salespeople pitch it to the accounts, your book will sell. Like your book will, copies will get bought into bookstores and libraries and other, possibly other special markets. Even if it's not so flashy as your, your lead title, you know, it's not the buzz book or not the hyped book of the season. Often these midlist titles do have pretty steady sales that keep chugging along without 
without all that sort of, you know, fancy promotion and, and advertising, etc. So I know it can kind of suck when you are a midlist author and you're like, well, every, well, this title is getting all of this promotion work done, but mine isn't. It doesn't mean that your book is languishing completely forgotten mm-hmm. <laughs> on your publisher's desk. It, you know, like I said, the machine keeps moving, even if you don't necessarily see it. So, okay, so then let's talk a little bit about promotion on the author side. I am, I find this somewhat interesting because, like I said, I just finished doing a bunch of blog tours and interviews, um, which I don't mind doing, but they were quite a few of them, and it was very exhausting trying to come up with slightly different versions of the same answer, you know, which is generally, where did you get, where did, where did the inspiration for Winter Song come from? And I was like, I don't know how many times I can answer this. <laughs> um, read my last interview. Yeah, read the last interview, please. And um, But the stuff that the author can do can be as little as that. I personally didn't do a lot of my own promotion. Part of that is because I work a full-time job. I don't have time necessarily to, or even the money to go, you know, to do all sorts of fancy things for my own book. I didn't even make bookmarks or swag <laughs> for my own title. So literally I did the barest amount of promotion an author can do and my book did pretty well. But there are extenuating circumstances to my situation that I do want to talk about a little bit. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, so there's like that. And then there's kind of on the other end where you can do a lot of your own work. I know of authors who have hired their own outside publicists who may mm-hmm. have reached into markets that the publisher, that the publicist at your publishing house does not have. For example, local markets. I think this is particularly useful for people who write nonfiction specifically, more so than fiction, but nonfiction, you know, you can get maybe appearances on like your local talk radio or, you know, your local news show or something like that, where you kind Mm -hmm. of get, you know, promotional segment. So like those sorts of things for nonfiction, I think can be useful if you have the money and the resources to hire an outside publicist um, or even a speaking agent. Particularly for nonfiction, I think this does help. I mean, for nonfiction, your speaking engagements will probably help sell your book more than any any sort of ad buys can do. Other things that I've seen authors do with, you know, either part of their own advance or out of the out of pocket, um, make their own book trailers. People can do that. Uh, like I've mentioned, swag before. But probably the most expensive and probably the most effective is actually sending yourself to conferences, which I'll put a link to the the post, but our, our alum, Suze, Susan Dennard, had written a post about that, um, which I think is kind of illuminating, you know, to, to show the sort of work that an author has to do to make sure that their book is a success. Now, we've talked about this before, about defining what success is for yourself. And that's fine, you know, and, and Amy, y'all should read Suze's post because I think it's really great. It's really great. And honest. And Suze has always been really good about that sort of advice. 
Um, but she's basically like, look, I needed this book. I needed Truth Witch to work because the sales of my previous series weren't that good. So she, you know, invested the money back into her own title to making it successful. Um, so that's kind of on the, on the more extreme end of things. And I believe Sue spent, you know, Sue's did spend a lot of money, uh, sending herself to conferences, pitching herself at panels. I think she also hired, um, people to assist, I think was she like a street team to assist, mm-hmm. spread the word of spreading the word about her book. So a lot of that work, uh, was done by her. So, all right, I'm going to come back to the case of my own book and me not doing a lot of work on my own to promote it. I think two things. I don't think I would have been able to do more promotion than I did because I just didn't have the time and I didn't have the money. But I was also pretty much okay and resigned to being a midlist title. Um, and I, that was sort of the way I saw my own book was like, all right, you know, it's kind of here. It's not super hyped. It's not super big. And I'm fine with that as it is. Also, I had this, I also had the advantage of knowing that the publishing machine keeps going. So even if I'm not doing a lot of active work, I knew that my publisher was doing work. I do want to talk a little bit about hype. (laughs) course it's only been two weeks out since my book has come out but i would pretty much say that the reason it landed on the new york times bestseller list was simply because of the hype that had gone into it people had heard about my book and therefore they went out and bought it the first week what causes hype do you have an answer do you think kelly what causes hype like the root cause Mm -hmm. what generates hype I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for that other than, you know, hype and word of mouth are in like they're linked, um, inter they're intertwined in such a way that they can't be, you know, undone from one another, but like the root cause of hype. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Do you? I think hype is generally driven by an idea that is inherently commercial. And I say that because I know that the basic premise of Winter Song is very commercial. And I know that, you know, it's easy to talk about my book in a high concept manner. It is a, so it's a very commercial idea. And so it's kind of easy to wrap your mind around the concept. What my old boss used to say, say was the handle of the book. Now, not all commercial, not all books with commercial hooks have hype. So, but I think it's easy to generate hype around a book with mm. a commercial hook to it. So I think to me, that seems to be the root cause, but that, of course, that's not always the case. You know, anytime people like a book or talk about a book that does generate buzz and it generates hype. And for me, I had a lot of friends in particular who read early drafts of winter song and loved it. So they talked about it and that also generates hype. And that isn't something that I paid for. And it isn't something that I did myself that, you know, I mean, I think that's, you know, obviously the organic part is you don't want people to feel obligated to talk about a book, but Mm. you know, hype is, I think organic 
But can you buy it is the question. Do you think you can buy hype? I don't think you can buy hype. I think you can buy exposure. And I think that exposure can lead to hype. It's hard to hype something that no one's heard of. Right, right. (laughs) You know, you can't, you just can't do it. Like if one singular person is really psyched about something, that's not hype. Um, So hype is a phenomenon at which a mass of people are excited and anticipating a thing. Um, So I think that you can buy exposure. I think you can put money into getting your book out there and exposing it to as many people as possible and hope that it connects with as many people as possible who then start talking about it and generate hype. Um, But I don't think you can purchase hype. I think even if you were like, (laughs) all I can think of right now is like paid protesters, which aren't a real thing. Um, (laughs) But even if you had like paid hype men who would like you know, you paid 50 bucks to somebody to go on Twitter and do nothing but rave about Winter Song or your book or whatever. I mean, I don't think that will translate into a real, um, a real phenomenon in which the public at large is excited about something. I think that, you know, you, you can't buy it. Money can't buy love. Money can't buy hype. <laughs> but you can, you can use money to better position yourself to become a hypeable author I think Mm -hmm. and the other thing is you can buy as much exposure as you want but if if that doesn't generate hype or if if it's not catching somehow with an audience at large then it doesn't matter how much money you sink into promoting your title at which point it's almost better off to just you know what let the publishing machine do its own thing and not yeah. sink so much money into it. This is the weird symbiotic relationship between hype and promotion. So mm. when Winter Song was, was acquired, it was pretty much a midlist title. It had a midlist advance. And I wasn't expecting too much out of it. I guess, really, aside from my friends who read early versions of it and loved it, and obviously, they well, I don't they don't have to love it, I suppose, but they're my friends. So, you know, my friends are obviously going to like my book. But... I guess in-house, the enthusiasm started with my marketing team because, you know, my my editor launched Winter Song for the sales and marketing team and somebody marketing, my, my lovely marketer, Karen, you know, heard of the idea, fell in love with the idea, read the book and fell in love with the book. And so her enthusiasm in-house drove a lot of you know, it, it, it got the ball rolling. And that's really the thing about hype is that it's, you know, it's like starting an avalanche, you know, it's something small, but it just, you know, the momentum keeps growing. And that's a little bit like what it, what hype is. So really I owe so much success to my marketing person because she's not the first, I mean, the first person who actually fell in love with my book, aside from my agent was my editor, but she saw a commercial potential in my, my, my marketing person saw a commercial potential in my book and therefore was able to get mm-hmm. everyone else in house excited about it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where it starts on the traditional side. But the other thing is, like I said, it's a symbiotic thing because if my book hadn't caught other people's interest in house, then they wouldn't, then it kind of goes nowhere. It's one person who just loves a book and this book is a labor of love. I should know I have worked on 
several titles like that myself when I was an editor, that I loved this book dearly to pieces. And a lot of people would acknowledge like, yeah, this is a great book. This is a, you know, really good book and it will resonate with the right audience. But there wasn't that like hype behind it. So even Mm -hmm. if you have somebody who's really super hyper enthusiastic about your title, if it doesn't catch, if it isn't contagious, then it doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Um, and the whole thing too, is that there's, you know, the symbiotic relationship between hype and promotion is that once a book starts to get hyped, whether or not that hype originates within your publishing house or outside of it, the, the fact that more people are getting interested in your book is going to actually prompt your publisher to also put money into keeping that ball going. Mm-hmm. I think Sue said that too, you know, that once it started, once it became clear that Truth Witch was getting, you know, was gaining momentum essentially was that's, and Tor stepped in and Tor, her publisher stepped in and, and helped her out and, you know, started promoting her titles more as well. So again, there is that sort of symbiotic relationship and the same, the thing, same thing happened to Winter Song. It was essentially, I think people started adding it on Goodreads and, you know, they looked at how many people had added the title to Goodreads. And based on that, they were, mm-hmm. you know, they went back to the publisher and was like, Hey, can we have more advertising money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like that all builds upon each other. Yeah. I have questions for you about winter song and your process of promotion, because you say that you didn't do a lot of promotion and, you know, I know that you say things like, oh, I didn't create swag and I didn't do these other things, but you did do a lot of stuff that I consider promotion. And I don't know if I'm thinking about it in the wrong way and it, it's not really promotion. It's something else. But I feel like, you know, starting well over a year before your release, you maintained a blog and you had your winter song Wednesdays mm-hmm. and you would talk about winter song, um, you know, more or less on a weekly basis. And in the beginning it was a lot of behind the scenes stuff and it was a lot of, you know, inspiration and, um, different things like that. You had a newsletter that you sent out, uh, monthly, I think, yeah, monthly. um, where you talked about that and you, because you are an artistic person, um, you did things like for, you were doing Inktober and you did doodles of your characters. And obviously not everyone can do that because (laughs) one, not everybody has any talent in that way. I'm one of them, Um, you know, and, and two, so like that, that I think, I think those things were all really an organic part of who you were. You already had a blog. You didn't create one just for your book. You always draw. You didn't start drawing just because you wanted to promote your book. But you found things that you were already doing and found ways to incorporate your book and being an author into those things. Um, And do you consider that promotion? Because I kind of do. I guess it is. Um, For me, it was just an extension of... (laughs) hobbies also procrastination mm-hmm. i didn't yes. i didn't want to write so i did all of these other things instead look i'm still working exactly it still counts it's, as yeah, work it's absolutely it's related to my book it's work it's absolutely work um the newsletter thing i did actually was i was inspired by Sue's because uh, i love her newsletter and i've been reading her newsletter mm-hmm. for a long time i just thought they were super charming looks into her life and her process and i thought okay you know that'll be fun because and honestly i love i love my newsletter because it's a lot easier to maintain than a blog 
Um, <laughs> it is. I only have to do it once a month. And people who actually opt into my newsletter are the people who want to read it as opposed to like feeling like I'm just writing into a void, <laughs> you know, like it's just so, um, you know, and, and I, and I try to keep my newsletter more than just news. Cause that's the thing about, I don't know, like back in the Back in the 90s, people used to have personal newsletters, you know, that they would either mail. Yeah, yeah, you guys, we used to mail this sort of stuff. Um, or like... Oh my God, zines. I know, exactly. Zines is what I was thinking of. Um, so I, I I, was sort of familiar with that kind of personal touch to it. And so I was like, oh, it'd be fun. I can talk about my own life, you know, in a bit more personal way. I can talk about my process. I can talk about fun tidbits behind the scenes of my book. I also love the title of my newsletter is actually lexical gap. Um, because I love words that fill lexical gaps in English or lexical gap is essentially, you know, a gap in the language where we don't have a word for this particular concept or whatever. Most of them are German because I love German compound nouns, but I do, I like collect these lexical mm-hmm. gaps because they just interest me. Having lived with you, I know this is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was kind of what I structured my newsletter around because I like sharing that with people. I think this is cool. Like, isn't this cool that this word exists in this language for this feeling or this emotion, but we don't have a word for it in English. I don't know if that mm-hmm. comes from the fact that English is not my first language, but it's just like, isn't that cool? And I like to share that with people. So that was where the the newsletter sort of started from. But, I mean, it is promotion, certainly. It, you know, got word about my book out there. Um, But I also don't know if people signed up solely for my book. No, I don't think so. Um, But I think that that speaks too. you know, we've talked before here about author presence on social media and author branding and other things and how important it is to be a person. Like, you know, even if it's your author persona and not your private self, it's important to be more than just buy my book, buy my Mm -hmm. book, buy my book. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that that's nobody likes a walking advertisement. And so finding those organic ways, you know, like where you said, where these are hobbies that you're just folding winter song into things that you would already be doing anyway. Um, You know, and for some people it's art, for some people it's music, for some people it's gifts. I actually think that Sue's retweeted recently. She had done like a GIF um, recap of Truth Witch right before winter, right before Wind Witch came out. I love it. It was amazing. (laughs) It was so good. And it's like, this is fantastic. Um, you know, it can be anything. It can be whatever. Um, find things that connect to you. And certainly, if you are going to invest money in it, um, you know, you are going to get a street team or you are going to get publicity, um, hire a publicist, or you are going to make, you know, swag or things like that um, and put money in. And then, you know, that's certainly a different facet of promotion that is about product pushing, Um you know, and that's fine and that's great, but there's also an element of, you know, when you, the author, are doing your own, like when you are being the face of your book and your promotion, to remember to be a, be a face, have, have a personality, do things that you enjoy doing because JJ will be the first one to tell you guys it is work. Mm-hmm. It is work to promote your book. It is work. It is exhausting. It is time consuming and it can be a chore and it takes away from other things that you might rather be doing instead. And so 
if you're doing something that you hate just because you think it will improve, you know, the hype or the visibility of your book, don't do that. Find ways to promote your book that you can at least be, um, authentic about be glad you're doing even when you're exhausted and even when you're frustrated and just want to crawl into bed. (laughs) I think, I mean, there are certain things, obviously, especially leading up to release a lot of these things that my publisher had me do, you know, a lot of them were blog tours and stuff like that, but you know, it's also at that point, you don't want to say no to your publisher anything your publisher probably has a pretty good idea of what opportunities would best suit you and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Now I was really lucky. I am actually fairly close with my marketing publicity team. Um, you know, it's, it's, and this is actually can be somewhat unusual, particularly in publicity because publicity can kind of be a revolving door of publicists. (laughs) And in fact, my current publicist is my second, but my first, um, went to another house rather early in the process, so she wasn't quite as involved. But I was pretty lucky in the in that my publisher, as marketing and publicity team, was pretty much a cohesive unit from the start for Winter Song. Um, but yeah, you don't really want to say no to your publisher, and it there there are things that they did that I couldn't do or that I didn't think of. You know they had galleys of my book available at Yalfest. Now, I went to Yalfest, but I went as a spectator. You know, I went to see my friends and to attend the panels and, you know, but and I wasn't there in any sort of official capacity, but my publisher, you know, went to give away galleys and promote my book. They created a print of Winter Song uh, for Winter Song, which is actually my artwork <laughs> that they printed on uh, sheet music. And so they did a lot of, you know, cool stuff and giveaways and, you know, they have good access and good contacts and the blogger world and all that sort of stuff. So they, you know, were able to access these things that I do not or could not and frankly don't want to. <laughs> it's just, it's too tiring. And I, a lot of people like doing their own promotional work. Um, you know, a lot of indie authors in particular, a lot of self-published authors do a lot of it and a lot of them like it. It it and I and I'm not gonna lie that if I had all the time in the world, this would be just kind of fun to do, you know. Make make videos, make you know artwork, or do this and just you know promote stuff in that way. It would be fun to do full time, but I just don't have that time. You know, I, I'm at a, an office day job for over forty hours a week nowadays. And the last thing that I want to do when I get home is write, but I have to do it. And the, you know, further down that list is promoting my own book. You know, it's, it's, um, but it does. And also the thing about promotion is it's, you get as much out of it as you want to. I don't think like Basically, here's my here's my philosophy. If you're going to spend money promoting your book, do it because you want to do it, as opposed to do it because you're looking for a return on investment. Because mm. the return on investment is going to be difficult to quantify. Mostly because publishing moves so slowly. Like, you have no idea. Yeah. You don't have access to sales numbers in real time, necessarily. Like, I mean, I don't know. If you guys are published, most of you will probably have access to authors 
the Author Central, which um, Amazon provides for you that you can like sign up for and look, and it will provide you your BookScan numbers. BookScan doesn't, of course, give you the whole picture. BookScan only really registers point of sale of accounts that report to BookScan. <laughs> so what that means... It's an incomplete tool. It's an incomplete tool. And also what that means is essentially that BookScan only tells you what was sold at the register, you know, from, from these accounts that report to BookScan. That's not a complete picture of your sales. That's not a complete picture of how many copies an account took or, you know, it, it's, it's not. And moreover, BookScan only updates once a week. So you don't have daily metrics for how well your book is doing. So the, the effects of what a prom- whatever promotion you do will necessarily be delayed and you won't see what that return on your investment is for at least a week, most likely at least three to six months. That's when you see the actual effect of it. So if you're going to spend money on promotion, spend it because you want to spend it. Spend it because you enjoy doing it. Like I like I did. I draw because I enjoy doing it. You know, I created a little chapbook of annotations and, and stuff like that for Winter Song that I gave away in my newsletter. And I did it because I liked it. I did it because I like to design things. And I, li- I did it because I thought this would be a fun project to tackle while I was procrastinating. So... <laughs> It's amazing how inspired you'll become when you have something that you're supposed to be writing and you don't want to write it right now. now. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Um, And I do want to talk a little bit as well about the return on investment to go back to that. Why it's three to six months before you see any real effect. And that is simply because that's about how long it takes to calculate royalties. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And publishing is slow, is you guys. So slow. It's so slow. Why is it three to six months? My parents keep asking me this, and I keep trying my best to answer. Because, because it's still a business on this side. It's still a business of products that a company or warehouses are shipping out to retailers. This is like, you know... Clothing retailers or shoes, shoe stores, or even grocery stores, like there are products in warehouses that get shipped out. Um, and after a certain period of time, when the inventory is gone, they either order more or they return what's uns- what they return, what wasn't sold. And the same thing is with books. And if you return books after like a month, that's not long enough to actually get a sense of what the market wants or what the market is responding to. That's why publishing takes so long. That's why it takes three to six months mm-hmm. to get any sense of your, any sense of quote, real sales. Generally it's six months. I think nearly every publishing house with the exception, as I said, of Amazon imprints, nearly every publishing house does their royalty accounting periods as six months you know, six yep, months, twice periods. a year. Twice. It's usually January and July. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's usually January. Well, it kind of depends. It's like, it's, if you get your royalty statement in January, it would be for the previous period, like April through that's, I can't remember, but it, it's like, it encompasses. It's staggered. Yeah. yeah. It's, staggered. it's like a weird, yeah, it, it's kind of weird. 
Um, and of course, because not only, yeah, like whenever you get, whenever the royalty period ends, then it takes a certain number of months to process the royalty mm-hmm. statements. And so there's a lag time between when the period ends versus when you actually see your statement. I think that the period ending, so if you get your royalty statement in January, that would be April through October of the previous year. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then getting your statement in July would be November through March or April. You should look in your contract. Most of them will actually say what the periods are and when you can expect your statements. (laughs) And, and getting your statements twice a year, of course you'll see, you know, reserves against returns. And this is why it's also like it really, it's not just three to six months to see the effects of your promotion. It's a whole year. It's a year. It's really a year before you can have an accurate picture. Yeah. Because, as we've mentioned in our previous podcasts, um, especially the contracted one, is that you have reserves against returns. Remember what we'd said that, you know, essentially retailers at the end of three to six months want to clear out their inventory. They can return any unsold inventory to your publisher and they can sell it back. So these are returns. And... At the end of that period, so your publisher is going to hold back a portion of your earnings to basically cover the reserves. To guard against that, yeah. So you might, for ex- for example, you might in the first six months get, um, you know, have a lot of sales because a lot of copies were shipped. For example, in the first six months, you shipped 10,000 copies. And you're like, hooray, I got royalty money minus the reserves against returns. And then the next royalty statement. So the following six months, you see 4,000 of those 10,000 that was shipped in the previous period has been returned. Then you have a different picture. (laughs) Then you're likely not to see any additional money. So that's why looking at your sales over the whole year is really important. And that's also why I think, you know what, if you're going to promote your book, if you're going to spend money or spend time and spend energy, do it because you want to do it. Not because you think Mm -hmm. it will have any material affect. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else about promotion or hype or publicity and marketing that we want to talk about? I guess we can talk about conferences because I do think conferences are really great. I love, I, you know, I mentioned, I love y'all fest. That's a free one in the South, um, to, to attend. If you want to go, I love y'all fest because conferences and the like are really great places to network with other authors. And if you can get onto a panel that's, you know, somehow related to your book or your book is a good fit for, that's a great place to talk about your book, but not be like, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. But, you know, it's a place to Mm -hmm. discuss your book often with other authors. So it's not just you talking. And moreover, you would be doing this to educators and librarians um, and booksellers. You're doing this to industry people. So going to conferences, I think, if you are going to spend money, it's not cheap. Don't get me wrong. Going to conferences is not cheap, Um, especially if they're not in your state. You know, if you have to fly wherever, you have to pay not only the conference fee, you would have to pay the travel costs, the, you know, hotel and food and you know, what other promotional stuff you want to pay for. So it's not cheap, but I do think in terms of bang for your buck, 
that's probably where you would want to invest the most. But you can also go to conferences cheaply. You can. Uh, there are plenty of local conferences. Like where I am in North Carolina, there's a big SCBWI Carolinas conference here um, that is within driving distance for me. Um, again, Y'all Fest, which is in Charleston, is not that close, but it's also still within driving distance for me. And also at this point, you can ask your publisher to reimburse you or here they may say no <laughs> but you can always ask yes you can always ask the worst <laughs> thing they will say is no but it doesn't hurt and for all you know you may be able to agree okay they will pay for half or you know or a portion or they'll give you a stipend for something you know it may not cover the entire cost but they may be willing to pitch in something and particularly it I think, as Susan had mentioned, you know, the the more truth which was being talked about and buzzed about, I think the more the publisher was willing to financially pitch in. So you can always ask. Um, and also, if your publisher, you can also ask your publicist to pitch you. You know, if the publicist pitches you, then the publisher will pay for sending you. For example... Last year, I was sent to the Southern Independent Booksellers Association conference, which was within driving distance for me in Savannah. But they paid, you know, my publisher paid for that. They paid for my galleys to be there. They, you know, sent me there, put me up in the hotel, and they reimbursed me for travel and food costs. And it was fairly inexpensive for them to cover that for me. You know, it's just one night in a hotel, you know, and then food and, and gas didn't cost all that much money. So... I would, I would definitely ask your publicist, like, hey, I'm interested in going to conferences. You know, would you be, would you pitch me for them? Would you be willing to do this? And I think people would be pleasantly surprised to see, okay, we can probably do that. Like, even if they can't pay, they, they're going to try and help you out in some other way. But not a lot of authors take that initiative, I think. I think a lot of authors just accept or, you know, kind of just assume that they won't get any help. I think that's often the mentality. But <laughs> this is going to sound a little bit terrible. But I had a friend tell me, never be afraid to ask for anything a mediocre white man wouldn't be afraid to ask for. I mean... <laughs> so think about it that way. Would a mediocre white man <laughs> want to... Would a mediocre white man ask for this if he, if he would? then why don't you ask for it? <laughs> um, and it, like I said, it's not a very nice thing to say, but I think it is true, particularly in publishing where there's a high percentage of women and women are conditioned to not ask for things lest they mm-hmm. seem too arrogant or too entitled or whatever. It's really conditioning. It's not anything inherent. So just ask. It doesn't hurt. Why not? You know, be assertive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ask and accept the answer. If they say no, accept that the answer is no. Mm-hmm. If they say yes, then, you know, accept that gracefully. <laughs> and, you know, but definitely ask. Definitely, you know, put yourself out there. Yeah. All right. I think any final thoughts? I think that covers it. Sweet. All right. Are you working on anything? doing um, some edits on my client manuscripts. I have two clients. I'm working on edits for both of them. 
Um, and that is pretty much the bulk of what I'm working on right now. Yeah. I keep saying that I'm going to get back to my own writing, but it's really hard to be on both sides of the fence in an active way. And I think my focus right now really is just going to be more toward my clients, um, and finding new clients and reading queries and I think the all first stuff, six so. months to a year, I think is probably yeah. going to be focused on your yeah. career. I do keep getting ideas for my witchy book and just kind of like writing them down on scrap paper and setting them aside. So like it is percolating in the back of my mind, but I can't say I'm actively working on anything other than agenting stuff at the moment, which is really honestly something I'm really happy to be focused on. I wanted to make this career switch for a long time. And so um, I'm really excited to be fully immersed. How's book two going? It's going. It's actually going pretty well. Um, I think now that promotions, now that launch is out of the way, um, and my book is out in the world, aside from basically what I call maintenance promotion, not like the promotional blitz, but essentially like maintenance promotion, I have a little bit more time. I just finished up an essay that I... I'm writing for a mental health, health anthology by, um, edited by mm-hmm. Kelly Jensen. She edited the fem, uh, Here We Are Feminism in the Real World anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, so she did ask me to participate. So I just finished that essay up. So that writing commitment is off my plate. And honestly, like I'm looking at my calendar and I'm like, I don't have anything. It's just me and my book. <laughs> That's glorious. It is glorious. You have no idea. At some point, maybe I'll even have time to fit the gym back into my schedule. Oh, one can dream. I know, one can only hope. (laughs) Oh, man. Are you reading anything? I did um, squeeze a book in this week. Um, So reading time has been precious and and hard for me to come by because I've been reading manuscripts that I requested and queries and things like that. Um, But I did make an exception this week when I got American Street in from the library. Mm. American Street by Ibi Zoboy? Yeah, Ibi Zoboy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved it. I read it all in one go. I stayed up late in bed. I got it um, through the library on my Kindle. So my husband was like sleeping and all the lights were out. And I just had like the glow of the Kindle right up by my face. And I just read the whole thing in one in one go really late um, into the night. And I cried. And then I actually couldn't fall asleep after reading it because every time I would start to drift off I would like remember some passage from the book and it would like haunt me and I would wake back up and like just like (laughs) think about it um it is a book about a um actually an American citizen who has lived almost her whole life in Haiti. She was born in America and then as an infant was taken back to Haiti um, and lived her whole life in Haiti and then is immigrating to America with her mother and to be with her extended family, her aunt and her cousins. Um, The protagonist's name is Fabiola Toussaint. And the book opens with her having just got through customs um, and her mother is denied entry 
And so she's separated from her mother and needs to, she had a stopover flight and then she gets on the second plane by herself and flies to Denver to meet her family and her mother is left behind. And so right away, the opening scene of the book is just excruciating. Um, the writing in this book is beautiful. Um, it, it was just such a, it was such a beautiful, heartbreaking book. And I mean, it's magical realism. Um, I would not call it fantasy. And it's to the... I think it's de deliberately written in an ambiguous way where there could be actual magic happening or it could be the lens of her faith that makes things appear to be magical, but in reality there's no magic happening. And it's ambiguous, and I think at different moments throughout the book I leaned one way or leaned the other. Um, I think it was really deftly done. It was so beautiful. I cried so hard <laughs> at the end of this book. I really can't recommend it enough. Um, the author herself based a lot of the book um, on her experiences. She did not um, immigrate to Denver, but she immigrated to, I think, Brooklyn? Um, when she was much younger. So she's drawing on a lot of her own personal experiences. Um, she's just a beautiful writer. It was a wonderful book. I just really think everyone should read it. Yay! Yay! Have I read anything? <laughs> like, trying to... <laughs> Have I read anything? Um, oh, I finished Flame in the Mist by Renee Atier, which I loved. Um, sorry, you guys can't read this for a while, so... It's one of the perks of being friends with, with cool people who get to read their stuff. Um, I finished Flame in the Mist, which I really loved. I also had gotten, but didn't start, Dawn Study, which is the last, I believe it's will be the oh. last book in the study. You have, series. like, outsnidered me. I know. <laughs> I have. I introduced you to these books, and you have outsnited me. Although, just with the study series, because I haven't read the the glass, the opal, the opal books. I haven't read those. I need to read those, and then I need to read this newest one. And you need to read her other I know, series. I know. But I I opened up Dawn's Study, and then I was like, I don't really remember what happened. That kind of happens to me with all of her books. I love them. They're like crack. And like when I sit down to read Maria V. Snyder, it's like I inhale these books. But I don't have always the best recollection of like what happened. Yeah, same. And of course I read them. I binged them, I think, last year. So mm -hmm. I like read like nine of them in a row. And so I was just like, <laughs> and now I can't remember exactly what happened when or what exactly what the stakes are so I like opened it and I was like oh my god do I have to binge them all again <laughs> like start from the beginning of the study <laughs> series and just go all the way through is this the only way I can read Maria V. Snyder now it's just like I'm the same way <laughs> it's worth it though I would I would binge them all again oh, yeah I mean I, I don't have time right now to binge yeah. them all so I might table uh, dawn study until I have another vacation or something where I can just like do nothing and binge all those books. <laughs> um, so I did, I did have that. I mostly have not read a ton simply because I've been falling asleep super early. I'm just like, sleep, sleep is great. Like coming back from launch. I think I, I just like every weekend I'm like, sleep is 
glorious. I don't even watch TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I do. I think I literally just nap on my time off. No, it's beautiful. And it's, it's beautiful. I love it. So not a ton of reading on on my end. Uh, any off mini recommendations? Um, off menu recommendations. I don't think so. I don't have any new political podcasts this week. Um, I don't think I've really been watching much of anything. I don't think I have anything to recommend. I feel like I had, and then I can't remember. <laughs> um, was I listening to new music? Did I? What was I doing? What am I doing with my time? <laughs> Who knows? Sleeping, napping, napping, <laughs> napping is great. Um, I really feel like the older I get, the more I'm like, where does my time go? Um, mm-hmm. I am slightly obsessed with the Fifty Shades of Grey soundtrack, which is slightly embarrassing. Um, because that is literally, when I look back on my phone, that is literally the thing I have listened to the most. <laughs> nice. I haven't listened to it yet. I think I heard the Taylor Swift Zane duet. I haven't, thing. I have not heard the, the newest, this is the, the soundtrack to the first movie, um, ah. which has the super slow, super sexy version of Crazy in Love by Beyonce. Mm-hmm. It's great. That's amazing. Um, That's a great, it's a great cover or not even cover, but re- just like a great it's just the technical term yeah yeah, because it's beyonce doing it but it's super sexy and great um it also has a song by sia that i really love uh salted wound which is actually on Mm. my winter song 2 playlist it's on book two's playlist i really love it um so that's like mostly what i've been listening to have i listened to any new podcasts or anything like that i don't think so i think like we ha- like Mark and I haven't started watching anything new on television. Um, oh, I did discover this today. The BBC is streaming for free the audiobook of Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. Oh, yeah. So I haven't started it yet, and I'm really curious to start reading this book. So this is like combining my two interests and it's free. So, uh, I will find a link to that and I will put it in the show notes. If you guys want to listen, it's I think for the next 29 days. So the next month you'll be able to listen to, um, underground railroad. Uh, other thing I found today that I'll just put a link to. And the real question is why there's a, a YouTube star, named Anthony Vincent, pretty, pretty talented musician, I guess, but he does covers of songs in like 20 different styles. So his most recent is a cover of System of a Down's Chop Suey in like the style of like Mongolian throat singing and the Rat Pack. And like, it's, and I just, I would, I had sent this to my friend and I was like I don't know if I love it or hate it oh my god and it ends on um, Chop Suey as done in the style of boys to men and I'm more I pretty much died <laughs> I died and then I discovered that he had done the Pokemon theme song to the style of only late 90s musicians and bands and I was like dead 
I'm dead. <laughs> Goodbye, world. I have gone down this rabbit hole. So I will put a link oh my God. to some of some of those videos. Anthony Vincent is his name. Wait, speaking of horrifying YouTube videos, have you seen the My Little Ponies lip syncing musical songs? No. Video? No. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay, so this is from 2009. And apparently in 2009, there was a My Little Pony live stage show that was like a tour and it's people in like old school ponies not my friend not friendship is magic like old school 80s ponies <laughs> in full-size costumes where like the person has the big um like ceramic head with the eyes that can like the animatronic blinking mm-hmm. like eyes and nose and stuff and then the person the human's legs are the front legs of the pony and then the rest is like paper mache out the back <laughs> um <laughs> And it this video is apparently, so apparently this was a live tour that went around in 2009. And this particular video is not any actual footage of the show, although you can find that on YouTube. This is like in between a matinee and an evening performance. The actors are hanging out in the theater with nothing to do and they're in costume. And they put on show tunes and they act out the show tunes in the pony costumes. <laughs> it is the most horrifying, uncomfortable thing I've ever seen. It opens with I'm telling you, I'm not going from Dream Girls. <laughs> It moves into Wicked, and, and it just keeps going. And it's like, it. I am sending you a link immediately, and we will link to it in the show notes. It is the most bizarre thing. And it's like, I'm, I was doing that, like, laugh cry where I'm like, I don't, I can't identify my emotions right now. I'm so uncomfortable. And it's like... <laughs> That's all for this week. We are going to be taking a break for the month of March, a short hiatus from the podcast so that um, JJ can finish working on book two by her deadline <laughs> and uh, and so that I can get some things done and get caught up um, in my life. So we're going to miss you dreadfully, but we will be back in April. And when we come back in April, we're going to be talking about queries. Yeah. So in the, in the hiatus, why don't you go ahead and send us queries that you guys would like to critique? We have done um, critiques in the past on the podcast where you guys mm-hmm. have sent them in to us. So uh, we're opening that up again for the next four weeks. So go ahead and email those to uh, publishingcrawl at gmail.com with the subject headline query critique so we know it's for the podcast yeah and if you're new to the podcast and you haven't seen us do this before um, we read queries aloud on the show and we critique them Uh, we do remove identifying information so we'll take your name and your title out of the um, out of the query and if there's anything you know that identifies you in your bio we would take that out too so it will be anonymous Um, but if you send us your query you are giving us permission to read it on the podcast and critique it. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Um, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. As always, if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. 
You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or on my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed and created by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.